Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Mavs Warriors prediction is this. I think it gets very entertaining once it gets back to Dallas. I think this goes six or seven. Looking at the Heat Celtics series, I really like the Boston Celtics. I see them winning this series, and I see them winning the NBA Finals. It makes too much sense based on their roster composition, how well they defend, the fact that they have nothing to lose, but also the fact that if they get out of this series, they're going to have home court advantage. I want to welcome a very, very special guest and friend of mine, Adam Shire. Adam is the founding member and first developer of Change.org, also the uh, creator and inventor of Siri. My first version of Siri was actually in 1993. I had a long-term vision. I literally thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could just talk to an assistant and it could help you navigate all the world's services and content and help you do things. Now, where does the name Siri come from? Well, we wanted a human-sounding name that was not too common, pretty easy to pronounce and type and spell. We had a long list and Theory rose to the top, but for different reasons. Welcome to the 137th episode of the Pull Up Pod. That's right, 137 episodes. And on this date, May 20th in 2019, saddens me to say, a Game 4 win against the Blazers in the Western Conference Finals sent the Golden State Warriors to the Finals for a fifth straight postseason. Uh, they joined the 1960 Boston Celtics as the only team in NBA history to make the finals in five consecutive seasons or more. Celtics did it 10 straight times, which is wild. The 60s Celtics were unbelievable, and the 70s brought them Larry Bird. So kudos to them. The rich always get richer. In terms of things that stand out to me, when I think back to facing the Warriors, we faced the Warriors um, four out of five straight seasons starting in 2016. 2015, we actually lost to the Memphis Grizzlies. I was a second-year player in the league, and that was kind of my welcome to the league moment. Get to the playoffs. Um, Wesley Matthews in, in, ends up being hurt. He tears his Achilles. Um, Aaron Afalo gets hurt, and I end up having to start in the playoffs against Tony Allen. This is during the grit and grind gang, Memphis Grizzlies era. Fast forward. Played the Warriors four out of five years from 2015 to 2019. Ended up playing them four straight years, which is crazy to think about. You know, I wonder what life would have been like if the Warriors weren't so good during those times. But I think back to, first of all, playing in the Oracle, how different it is in the Chase Center. A lot of people talk about it. Obviously, the Chase Center is very nice. But the Oracle was different in terms of how loud it got, in terms of everything about it from a memory standpoint. It was just a different experience. But I think back to... The fans, the style of play, the players, obviously, Clay, Steph, and Dre are like the core for those Warriors 
teams during during those times. Obviously, you had Iguodala. Their first championship, I believe they had Harrison Barnes. Um, they had Livingston. They had a lot of guys, uh, Festus Azili. The list goes on and on. But the core remains the same. And I think Dre talked about it on, on TNT the other night after the game, how everything kind of starts with Steph, how selfless he is. He's one of the most selfless superstars in the league. I mean, he's so selfless, he volunteered to come off the bench uh, during the playoffs as he worked his way back from injury. I don't know too many starting caliber players that would volunteer to come off the bench, let alone MVPs, let alone two-time MVPs, let alone the unanimous MVP, let alone a guy who makes, you know, damn near 50 million a year. So that kind of shows you his selflessness, how he's able to kind of do whatever's best for the team. So if Steph will do it, the others have to kind of fall in line. I think that's what kind of sticks out to me is the selflessness of the team, how they share the ball, how they play on offense. Steve Kerr has done a, a terrific job of kind of getting them to buy into the culture. Obviously, they implemented KD during some of those times, which was two straight trips to the finals, one championship in which he wins uh, finals MVP as well. But even he, you know, being friends with him to this day, he talks about the adjustments the Warriors are able to make, you know, coming out of halftime. You know, most Warriors fans, I think, Greg, you're a Warriors fan, you can attest. The Warriors are a really, really good third-quarter team. No one really knows why. Not sure if it's the X's and O's, players kind of locking in and focusing or just turning the switch on, maybe a combination of all those things. But that's what kind of sticks out to me is is how they were able to take arguably one of the greatest players of all time in KD, right? You know, top 10, top 15, depending on who you ask, greatest players of all time, and bring him in alongside Steph, Clay, Trey, all of these talented players, and he was able to kind of change his game. If if you kind of remember how he played um, when he was in OKC, it was a lot of ISO, a lot of standing still, a lot of one-on-one play. He kind of kept some of that, but became more efficient with his movements, became a better passer, became a better defender, started to understand the game better. And I think most Warriors fans will say they didn't know he had that complete of a game. He was just kind of known as a scorer. Then you see him blocking shots, and now you can kind of see it to this day with him in Brooklyn, how multifaceted he is as a basketball player. And a lot of that comes from his time with the Warriors where he was able to kind of fully um, appreciate and, and, and mold his game. I think you said two straight trips and one finals. It's it's three trips and two finals. Three trips, two finals. How many championships did they win during that time? They won two with KD. You said one. Oh, my goodness. I forgot. One of them is a blur. So they won two with KD. The third one is the one he he and Clay got hurt, right? Mm-hmm. That is wild. Uh, time has time has really really just gone by. So I stand corrected. K got two finals with them. Would have had a third, but if not for the injury, and he was killing that game. Might have still won it if Clay doesn't, you know, slip off the rim, you know, due to the injury and the contact that he received um, against the Raptors. So that is that just kind of tells you how good they've been that they've won. Two championships during that time, and I just kind of completely forgot about it, took it out of my mind. I think what's unique about that organization is where they've come from, right? Like, they were not very good for a very, very long time. They had Monte Ellis. They were kind of like on the fence. You know, they had David Lee. Mark Jackson decides to bench David Lee, decides to start Draymond Green. The rest is kind of history, but they had the draft right, and they had to not trade Steph, and they almost traded Steph. They talk about it a lot online and in different articles. How different would this team have been if they trade Steph? Right? They draft well with Clay. They kind of figure out their bench units. They bring in Igudala, and I think that kind of transformed their franchise. It kind of transformed how they're known and the fact that their organization, front office and management is able to spend money, right? You bring in KD, you go over the tax, they don't care. You look at the roster now, they got they got Wiggs, they got Clay, they got Steph, they got Dre. They're probably over the cap again, probably going to go over the cap again. It shows you what they're willing to do 
in order to win, and that's whatever it takes. And I kind of I commend him on that because I think that's really, really cool uh, when the organization kind of buys in and is willing to do whatever it takes to win, bring in players, trade players, develop players. They got pool now. They got a lot of young guys. They find GP2, a uh, guy who was you know kind of bouncing around from team to team. Um, they they get Otto Porter, a guy who's in my draft. They get these pieces that kind of fill different roles and different voids in their roster, Kayvon Looney. And the next thing you know, they have a well-oiled machine after two years of not making the playoffs. So I, I think it's really, really cool uh, to see the the progressions that the, the, those guys have made, starters and bench players, and also really, really cool to see how the NBA has changed from 2015 to now. Just quickly, did the Warriors take a giant sigh of relief when the, when the Suns lost and the Mavs won, especially coming off of that Grizzlies series? Or are the Mavericks still, you know, are they still going to give them a lot of challenges? I think the Mavericks definitely still pose a lot of challenges, but historically, right, as a, as a player guy who's going to his 10th year in the league, I've watched a lot of basketball. There are certain matchups that are more favorable than others. And it's not to say that one team is better than the other. It's just to say that you match up better. And I think... The Warriors match up better against Dallas because of the way they scheme, because of the way that they kind of prepare and plan, and because of how they're going to guard Luka, right? Like, look at the game, you know, from a couple nights ago. They ran zone. They ran boxing one. They threw a lot of different stuff at him. They loaded up on him. They tried to make other people score, tried to make other people beat them. The way the Phoenix Suns roster is set up, and you credit Dallas for for winning game seven on the road, first of all. That was, that was a tremendous win, not just doing that, but how they did it. But I think the Suns-Warriors matchup would have been different because of how the Suns roster is constructed. CP is more of a facilitator, right? He shoots in the fourth quarter. So the way they're guarding Luka wouldn't necessarily work against the Suns because CP wants to facilitate anyway. He wants to pass the book, wants to get those guys going, wants to get Mikhail kickaheads, wants to get the ball to Aiden and pick and pop. So like the, the situation is different now because the offense kind of revolves around Luka which is good for the Dallas Mavericks, but also good for the Warriors because they can kind of game plan, like ball's going to be in his hands, load up, make him a passer, um, do those types of things. It's going to be really important for role players in this series. And I think, you know, Kenny talked about it, right? If the Warriors play to the best of their ability and Dallas plays to the best of their ability, the Warriors are probably going to win because on paper, they're a better team, right? And they got a home court advantage. The issue is if the Warriors don't play to the level they're supposed to and Dallas plays extremely well, similar to the Phoenix Suns series, right? If Jalen Brunson plays well, if he shoots well, if Spencer Dinwiddie plays well, shoots well, I think that changes the series. And in last game, Spencer played well and shot well, but they didn't get much help from the other guys. I think they ended up shooting, what was it, uh, 11 for 49 from three or something like that. That's that's not going to cut it. So they have to kind of tighten those things up. But to answer your question, I do think that the Warriors took a – Took a sigh of relief because it wasn't the Phoenix Suns and they understand the matchup was different. But I think that there's still pause. There's still doubt because they know just how good Luka is, right? Like he's good enough to win games by himself and he has enough help to win games and not play to the best of his ability, which is scary, right? Like Spencer, the way he played in that, that game seven um, on the road, it's very likely to happen again at some point. Like he's good enough to win one or two games in the playoffs, right? So if he wins one game, Luca wins two games by himself, that's three games you won this series. Now you got a game seven. And I think the Warriors understand that role players hit big shots here or there. They're able to swing series. I think Mikel did the same thing against us in the Phoenix Suns series, right? He scores 30 in a game, plays great defense. You had another game where Aiton was just a monster the entire series, but he kept them alive. CP, their star, wins a game for him. Book wins a game for him, right? So that kind of 
is how I look at things, right? What role player can win a game and how many games is a star player good enough to win? That's why it's similar to the Nuggets series, in my opinion, in that the Warriors are going to let Luka get his in the same way they let Jokic kind of get his knowing that no matter what, how you guard him, they're still going to put up numbers. But it's about limiting the role players. The Mavericks, though, have better role players than the Nuggets, which is why I think they're a bit more of a challenge than the Nuggets were. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, considering the fact that the Nuggets had a lot of injuries, but they didn't let Joker get off. Like, he's just unstoppable, right? I think I meant they they know he's going to get off no matter how they guard. Not letting him, but right. they're, they're, they're going to make it difficult, but they know that no matter what they do, they're probably going to put up 20, 25, maybe 30, a bunch of assists. Right. They're, they're definitely comfortable with a Jalen Brunson, Dorian Finney-Smith, Reggie Bullock, Spencer Dinwiddie, they're more comfortable with those types of guys shooting shots as opposed to Luka, right? Like, I mean, you look at every roster. There's certain guys you're willing to live with scoring. There's certain guys you're not willing to live with scoring. And Luka was a priority. He goes 6 of 18, 3 of 10 from 3, 5 of 8 from the line. He's a plus minus 30, scores 20 points uh, on 18 shots. Reggie Bullock, 4 of 12. Jalen Brunson, 6 of 16. Finney Smith, 2 of 6. Dinwiddie, 5 of 11. All these threes were were pretty open, right? Like there weren't the only guy that probably takes contested threes is Luca. Jalen Brunson plays in the mid range. Spencer takes contested stepbacks. But you go eleven to forty eight from three, you're not beating anybody. The crazy part is that the Warriors only went ten to twenty nine from three, right? They only shot thirty four or thirty five percent. Steph still hasn't played his best basketball. Clay hasn't played his best basketball, but was efficient. Jordan Poole has been great as of late um, in terms of you know last game. But I think the the moral of the story is both teams aren't shooting well. But Dallas have to play their best basketball to win. So I think from an adjustment standpoint, looking at game two, role players have to make shots. Role players got to take them with confidence. They also got to attack closeouts. When they get the zone defenses, the junk stuff, boxing ones, you got to be more aggressive to attack, but also look to attack and transition. And I think they'll kind of settle in. You know, winning the game seven on the road and then having to go play game one with travel, it's an emotional game. You're drained, you're tired, you're fatigued. They get to settle in tonight, kind of rest, watch another game, sit back and enjoy their time in the hotel. Luca can go out, you know, have a drink, whatever the case may be, kind of relax, settle in, and get ready for game two. I expect it to be much much more competitive in game two. Can we stay on Steph for a second? So you mentioned he didn't shoot great, but he probably looked like the best player on the floor in game one. He really has not shot the ball well all season. People trace it back to that cold streak, which really started around January, what most people would trace it to. But in reality, it really started when he started to chase the all-time three-point record. His numbers started to dip um, because that first month of the season, he did look like MVP Steph, which is why this season is so strange to me as someone who has watched Steph almost every second of every game for the last six, seven, eight years. He didn't look like he fell off uh, his game. Didn't look like he fell off athletically that much. But since that cold streak, he's looked about a step slower. And that jump shot, even on open jump shots, is is not as clean. Do you have any insight into why that is or what you think Steph is going through? even though he still is an incredibly effective player despite the low shooting numbers? I agree with the fact that he was chasing that three-point record and that might have thrown off his game a little bit because he became super three-dependent. And he's always shot a lot of threes, but he's been smart enough to kind of mix it up, get to the free-throw line, um, get finish at the paint. Steph doesn't really shoot a lot of middies, and I think that's affected his 
his efficiency this season, right? He only shot 43% from the field, shot 38 from three, but still was 92 from the line. He doesn't play in the mid-range a lot. That's the difference between him and Seth. Seth plays in the mid-range, um, shoots a lot of middies off pull-ups. They run the iris and cuts, things of that nature. But I think the moral of the story is Steph has been banged up this season. And a guy who's recovered from injuries, it's hard to come back from injuries and play at an elite level consistently, right? The conditioning is not necessarily there. You're not getting contact when you recover because they don't want to waste it, right? Like you're kind of picking and choosing, like maybe I practice today, maybe I don't. You know, he's battling ankle, foot, things of that nature. He had some other injuries early in the season. And I think that's affected his timing and his rhythm. And if your timing and rhythm are thrown off, obviously the balance wasn't the same because of the injury. It's hard to be as efficient consistently. You'll see him have those outbursts, right? When he first came back from injury in the playoffs and he was coming off the bench, he was only playing 20 to 28 minutes a night. And you see how great he looked. It was spurt minutes, taking him in and out of the game. He didn't really get fatigued. And he was in prime workout mode because when you're fighting back from injury, all you do is shoot, right? You can't really run. You're just shooting. Then you eventually start to run, progress into contact. And I think he was in prime workout mode, which is like basically the summer. And then you put him through a tough series. He's banging. They're putting him in pick and rolls. He's getting hit. He gets to the series against Denver, gets to the series against the Grizzlies where they're guarding him, picking him up full court, denying him, fouling him. And he's kind of like, when did he get the rest and recover if he was battling from injury, rehabbing from injury, and then having to be thrown right into the playoffs? So I think that's kind of played a role, played a factor. But like you said before, Steph hasn't shot well, hasn't played to the level that he's accustomed to playing with, but he still goes and gets 21 and 12 and looks like the best player on the floor and clearly impacts the game and changes the game and has a has a uh, plus minus of, of 23, third highest on the team and just has kind of showed the gravity that he has, the double teams that he that he draws, how all the attention is is just constantly focused on him. I think that's been um, consistently the same. I know you're about to give your series prediction uh, for both the Eastern and Western Conference, but can the Warriors win the championship if Steph and Clay don't get off the way they used to? I know, again, the team's playing great. They're playing great team basketball. They're super well coached. And both of those players are still super effective in their roles. But do they need to be able to go off for 30, 40 points on, you know, eight threes, 10 threes for them to really win the chip this year? I've gone on record saying that I think the champion comes out of the East. And I got a lot of respect for the Warriors. But I think, like you said before, the consistency, right? The consistency from Clay, Steph, Dre has historically always been there. Clay's obviously coming back from injury, so he's been up and down. They need two of the four to play extremely well. And by the two, I mean Steph has to play well for them to win a championship. There's no ands for buts because of the gravity, the ability, how well he plays, how efficient he is, what he does from the three-point line. He has to play well for them to win a championship. Then they need either Jordan Poole or Clay to play well. They don't need both of them to play well. If all of them play well, it's a guaranteed chip, which is hard to predict, hard to imagine with the defenses and injuries and things like that. But they need Steph to play well, and they need either or because Jordan Poole is such an enigma. Like, he's a really good basketball player. He's learning how to get fouled, pushes the ball in transition, gives them another isolation player, but also can play like Steph, pitch and catch, pitch and go, back doors. Has has more of an offensive variety than Clay for sure. Um, but doesn't have the body of work, doesn't have the defense, those things, the size, all of that stuff. But they only need two of those four to play well. You know what you're going to get from Draymond. He's going to rebound. He's going to defend. Kerr is in his ear, right? 
He's telling the media, we need the aggressive version of Draymond. They basically tell him, like, you have to shoot the ball. You have to be a threat offensively because you're killing our offense. Obviously, you facilitate, you do a lot of those things, but when you have open shots, you have to take them because it messes up the flow. He has to take the floater. He has to fake that handoff going right and get dunks. He has to take the corner threes when they're open. He has to take late shot clock threes. But you know he's going to give you, you know, seven to, seven to 12 points, eight to 10 rebounds, six to 10 assists every night. But it's it's the, the enigma is whether or not Jordan Poole plays well at the same time as Steph. Two out of four, you're good. Call it two out of three because you know what you're going to get from Dre. But I still think the winner comes out of the East. Well, give your Mavs Warriors prediction. Mavs Warriors prediction is this. I think it gets very entertaining once it gets back to Dallas. I seen the way Steph was dancing. They they paused the, the, the screen and you could see how Luka was staring at him. Similar, eerily reminiscent of when he left the court in Phoenix and he said, they want to be all excited when they up. They want to cheer when they up. And then he went on to, to do what he does, right? But I think, I think this goes six or seven. Um, I think the Warriors are a better team, but I just think Luka is so dominant that he's going to will them to victories and he's going to get enough help from his supporting cast to take this to six or seven. And I think the difference in this series compared to the last is obviously John Morant got hurt. The Memphis Grizzlies are a really good team, but I don't foresee the Warriors going into Dallas in a game six and winning. I think it goes seven. Looking at the Heat Celtics series, this has gone similar to how I expected. Obviously, as we record this, uh, the game is, is taking place now. The game, game two, taking place right now. But if you'd have told me Marcus Smart would be out and Al Horford would be out for game one, I would have told you the Miami Heat are going to win for sure. And it was a struggle. Uh, the Miami Heat had to go on a crazy third quarter run. Jimmy Butler scores, what, 17 points in the third quarter. He gets a couple steals. He's super aggressive, attacking, finishes with 41. And they win going away. Tonight is going to be different. Obviously, when we record this, the game will be over. But I think as the series progresses, you get a healthy Marcus Smart. You get a healthy Al Horford. Not only playing in Miami, but getting back to the Boston Garden. And those Celtics got action. Obviously, Jimmy Butler's playing at an MVP caliber level. But you bring back the defensive player of the year to guard him. And it, the looks get harder. It gets a little bit harder. He's more disciplined. He's not jumping for pump fakes. He's going to be aggressive. But he also can shoot, right? Smart can, can shoot the ball. I think he's you know top three in Celtics history and three-pointers made. He's going to change the way the franchise looks. But now Horford gives them versatility. A guy who can shoot threes, a guy who can guard one through five, and a guy who's a veteran leader who's just coming out of a series where he was guarding Giannis. So he has no problem switching on to Bam and switching on to Jimmy Butler. So I, I look forward to watching how this series progresses. I really like the Boston Celtics. I see them winning this series, and I see them winning the NBA Finals. It's, it's just, it makes too much sense based on their roster composition, how well they defend, the fact that they have nothing to lose, but also the fact that if they get out of this series, they're going to have home court advantage. You know, highest seed host. They're going to be hosting a game uh, one and potentially a game seven. Jimmy looked like the best player in game one. I don't know. Again, we're recording this during game two, so I don't know how that's going to look. Who would you take peak Jimmy Butler? At, you know, playing at his best in the playoffs or peak Jason Tatum? I love Jimmy's game. Shout out to my leaning fellow friend. Works hard. Big face coffee. Love the way he works. Works with my guy Brickley now. Um, 5 a.m. type of guy. Works out at 5, 6 a.m. Great worker. Great player. Great for the heat culture. Jason Tatum's ceiling is unbelievable. Mainly because of his ability to not only shoot the ball, but to shoot the ball off the dribble from range. I think that takes him to a new stratosphere. Scoring is one thing, right? Jimmy plays, scores, plays in the mid-range, gets, you know, 10 to 15 free throws a game sometimes in the, in the playoffs. Tatum can get to the free throw line 10 to 15 times, 
6'9", can finish around the rim, has a handle, catch and shoot three, not a problem, but also has a borderline elite jump shot off the dribble when he's hot, when he gets going, as he did last series against the Milwaukee Bucks in that, in that game six and that game seven. When he gets going, he's scary. Like his, his ability to score at all three levels, he's got a midi, he's got a mid post, he knows how to draw fouls, he can finish at the rim. But his handle in the three-pointer, step backs right, side steps left, side steps right, I think that takes him to a, a different stratosphere. So I like peak Jason Tatum because he's younger, he's 6'9", and he can shoot threes at a high clip and he's comfortable shooting threes. Jimmy plays, you know, Jimmy had 40, didn't shoot a three until there was two minutes left in the game in the fourth quarter. Stay tuned because now we're going to jump into an interview with a good friend of mine, a guy who I met through the All In Challenge, Adam Shire, founder of Siri, uh, one of the original founders, um, one of the original developers of change.org, just all around good dude. We had a great conversation. Thankful for him coming up on the Pull Up Pod. But stay tuned after that because we're going to get into some miscellaneous thoughts about basketball, including this Patrick Beverly, Chris Paul situation. I want to welcome a very, very special guest and, and friend of mine, Adam Shire. I appreciate you coming on the Pull Up Pod. We've got to know each other over the course of the last, you know, call it a year and a half, losing track of the time with COVID, losing track of the days, the years, the months, all those things. But I want to give you a chance to kind of explain how we met, how we've gotten to this point, and also talk a little bit about some of the things you're doing um, in your spare time and some of the ways in which you're, you're creating change in this world. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, CJ. No problem at all. I know it all started with the All In Challenge. Uh, I think Michael Rubin did this a little while ago. There was a lot of things happening in the world. Um, there still are, but obviously, you know, when, when COVID first started, a lot of people were at home. A lot of people were kind of figuring out um, their next move. We were trying to figure out ways in which we could impact different communities and kind of help people and stop the spread of of COVID. And I think it drew me in, you know, wanting to kind of create a package to raise money for different causes, food insecurities, things of that nature. So I put together a package and Adam was kind enough uh, to put money towards these packages and actually win. And we were able to spend a lot of time together. For those that don't know, Adam is the founding member and first developer of Change.org, also the uh, creator and inventor of Siri, uh, man of many talents, also practices magic in his spare time, also a huge sports fan. But I want to give Adam a chance to kind of talk about the All In Challenge, what drew him into the All In Challenge and what his experience so far uh, was like. And, and part of the package, for those that don't know, um, it was to attend a Browns game with me, which is you know a great time if you're a Browns fan or if you're a sports fan in general. It was to go wine tasting with me it was to attend a Blazers game. Uh, shout out to you know the Blazers, my former team. And the last part of the package uh, was to come on the pull-up pod. So here we are with the last part of the package. Yeah, thanks, DJ. Uh, you know, it was COVID times and um, you're kind of locked down in your little bungalow, feel like you can't go anywhere, do anything. And the All-In Challenge came. And as you said, it was for a really great cause. Uh, there were a lot of people who pitched in and said, I will create you know, celebrities and normal people said, I will create an experience. And for me, you know, experiences are so much more worthwhile than physical things, right? If you can spend time with someone, get to know someone and do something that just out of the ordinary, there's nothing more valuable than the memory of that. And so I was looking at lots of different experiences. Some caught my eye, but 
yours stood apart because it wasn't like one thing. Here's the, you know, here's my signed jersey or here's my, you created this experience that was so multifaceted. And the thing that really uh, enticed me to it was that I'd get to spend time with you and get to meet you. And, and I go, that is extraordinary. So as you said, we there were multiple components to it. Uh, the very first one uh, was wine tasting. And I know you're a huge wine fan. You have your own wine label. I think I think you've now bought your own vineyard. Is that right? You know, it's so, correct. And, I, and I'm a wine fan. And uh, my wife and I got to come up for the day. Um, first, we went to, I forget the name of the vineyard, but it was this just gorgeous vineyard with uh, food and wine tasting and this beautiful, beautiful space. We got to know your, your wife, Elise. We spent couple hours there just talking. Then we went to Adelsheim uh, Vineyards where you had your label. We got to try the CJ McCollum Pinot. It was extraordinary. We got to hear you talk about, you know, your process of how you put it together, what you were looking for. And it, it was just, it was one of the, the best days, you know, mostly getting to know you and, and uh, your wife and in this kind of relaxed, comfortable setting the whole experience. It was really, really special. Now, I appreciate you saying that. We had a great time. And for those that don't know, I actually, I, I made my wife come. She was actually pregnant during the time. So we went to, she went to watch me wine taste uh, as well as you know, Adam and his wife. And she was just uh, a soldier for the, for the process. And we were able to eat, converse, kind of get to know each other, talk through some stuff. And since then we've had a baby, Jacoby, as, as you know, most of the world knows. So life has definitely changed a lot, but I, I just, like you said before, I wanted to create experiences that I thought were cool, would give people, you know, a chance to get to know us, but also would be memorable. And if I'm going to, you know, donate towards charity, I'm going to donate towards certain people and things I want to. I want to be able to create great memories and allow people to to feel more confident in, in spending more money that that can go to to help people. So I thought that was cool. We get wine taste. As a Browns fan, like I just love the atmosphere of like a football game in general, being on the field, doing those types of things. And the Browns were actually good, and we've been good the last few years. So I thought that would be a cool experience. And then since I've been in the NBA, I was like, why not? Why not do a game as well? And you know. We end up losing that game against the Bucks, but I thought it was still cool that you were able to kind of do all of those things. No, it, it was everything was first class. You did an you and your team did an amazing job. Uh, I went to the Browns game with a friend of mine, kind of a uh, who lives in the area, and um, we got to be out on the field, which was an incredible experience. We even got to interact just a little bit with some of the some of the players down on the field and see you interact with them and and then enjoy the game and 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 again incredible experience but it was getting to know you and a lot of your family were at the Browns game so I got yeah. to meet you know your family and your friends and it, it was just epic I mean all of this is great I, I can watch a football game anywhere but to watch a football game with you and kind of be part of that I think I think I might have been one of the first people ever to know that uh, your wife was pregnant. You know, you kind of <laughs> announced that, and I was like, "Whoa, this is breaking news!" Of course, I didn't tell anyone, but that was like it made me feel like, "Hey, I'm here. I'm part of it." And um, yeah, that was great. And then the the Portland Trailblazers game game was extraordinary as well. I mean, you treated us so well. We had on the on the floor seats, and you know, got to experience. Uh, a game wasn't wasn't that competitive, but it was so entertaining. Um, and then afterwards, you gave me all this Portland swag, and 
two days later, I'm like, now what am I supposed to do this? You're not even a trailblazers anymore. You don't play for the trailblazers anymore. But no, it was, it, everything was top notch. Uh, and just getting to spend time with you and your family and, um, and have this experience, you know, almost as a friend, not just, it was, it was truly uh, amazing. So thank you. Thank you for supporting a cause and doing something like over the top. Like he could have just said, here's a signed shoe or Jersey or something, but you went all in. And when they named it all in challenge, you did that and more. So thank you. No, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad it was a really cool experience and, and something that you remember and something that I could also take part in while having fun. Like, I think that's the cool part. It's not like a forced event. It's like creating something that you will enjoy with other people who you think will enjoy it. And um, those are things that I would do normally. Like I would normally go wine tasting with my wife. I would normally go to a game. I would normally play. So why not share those moments with, with people who are genuinely interested in that and spending time? So I'm glad I'm glad you participated. I'm glad you were the winner because, you know, it could be rough, you know, spending that much time with someone. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It could be like, you got, it's like Russian roulette. Take a risk. A big risk, but I, I think it worked out really well for all parties and I'm thankful to be a part of it. Turning the page a little bit to get more into your background, some of the things that you've done up to this point, obviously technology has played a huge role um, in your life for obviously doing this through Zoom, right? Which is, you know, technology. We, we have a podcast that we put out to the masses, audio. We'll take some clips and use them as video. But I just want to talk a little bit about your background. Obviously, you were formerly the director of engineering at iPhone. At iPhone. You've done some work with Apple. You've created a lot of great things. Obviously, change.org, which we'll get into in a bit. But talk to me a little bit about your background in technology, how you kind of got started. You, you actually told me the story of how you, you know, came up with the name Siri. And if you feel comfortable sharing that, you can. If not, don't worry about it. Yeah, no, my pleasure. So my first version of Siri was actually in 1993, wow. uh, probably before you were born. I don't even know. And uh, before I saw a web browser. So I, I had a long, a long-term vision. I literally thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could just talk to an assistant and it could help you navigate all the world's services and content and help you do things um, before there was a web. So there weren't yet content and services around the world, but I had this vision. Uh, in 2007, the iPhone came out and I go, wow, now it's time. All the technology is here where it's time to start a company that I can really take this, this idea that I've been working on for 15 years and try to make something out of it. And so with two co-founders, Doug Kitlaus was our marketing CEO. Tom Gruber was our, our kind of lead designer started a company, raised some money, um, launched a free app in the app store after about two years of work. And, uh, and we called the company and the app Siri. And you asked, you know, where does the name Siri come from? Well, we wanted a human sounding name uh, that was not too common, um, pretty easy to pronounce and type and spell. Um, we had a long list and the uh, Siri rose to the top, but for different reasons. So our CEO is Norwegian-American, and in Norwegian, Siri means beautiful woman who will lead you to victory. It's kind of a Norse goddess kind of theme. Uh, and so that's the official meaning, official because he's the CEO, so he gets to choose the official meaning. But I had two other reasons uh, for naming Siri that. One is I like some relationship between father and 
daughter or father and son. So my name's Adam. It's a biblical name, first man in the Bible. And uh, Noah is my son. We're all descended from Noah because of the flood. So it's very similar. Four letters, kind of biblical names. Uh, you've got CJ and JJ, in a sense, right? There's some relationship, but it's not like a straight junior relationship. Well, the, the system I built before Siri was called Iris. And so for me, Iris was the mother. Siri, which is Iris backwards, uh, is uh, the, the daughter. And the final meaning of Siri is that uh, you mentioned I'm, I'm a magician. I like to I like to have secrets that only now I know that no one's else figured out. Uh, and Siri means secret in Swahili. And when we started the company, we were completely stealth. We literally had the domain name stealthcompany.com um, with a dash. And uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of we started the company and launched it. And that's why we called it Siri. Oh, that's cool. I appreciate you sharing that insight. And I think it's it's always you know, nice to hear how the food is prepared in the kitchen, so to speak, right? Like you always just come into, you know, different restaurants. I'm a big analogy guy and, and the food is just, is just kind of prepared for you. But like being able to see how it's prepared, all the things that go into it, I think it gives you a greater appreciation of it. And now Siri's still being used to this day, right? People taking advantage of it. People continue to figure out ways to, you know, gain information, to seek information, to retain information. And for you to have this this idea, this concept in 1993 is spectacular. I was born in 91, so I was two years old uh, to give you to give you a little insight as to you know my age but i think technology has grown so much it continues to evolve i think about when i first got to to college right you know there was no twitter right there was no instagram there was none of these things there was skype but there was no zoom and we've kind of continued to evolve to now we can like hold our phones around and talk to people and facetime and do all those things so i say all this to say where is ai going Right, like, where's the direction in, in which it's going, and what's one thing people don't know but should know about AI? Those are some great questions. I've been uh, a professional in AI for more than thirty years. I, I got my first AI job, full time job, in nineteen eighty six or eight or something like that. Um, and uh, for years, you could kind of chart the course of AI, and it was sort of a linear. Like every year, it gets a little better. And then about 10, 12 years ago, there was this hockey stick moment. Literally things like I had been working in, in AI for 20 years at that time. And if you had asked me, is this ever going to happen? I would have said no. There were things that I never thought I would see in my lifetime that happened in the last 12 years. And in any career, you know, basketball changes, the game changes, you know, um, but who would have expected this? So let me give you a few examples. Um, uh, IBM Watson uh, was a program that actually beat the world's human Jeopardy champion. Can, uh, I mean, Jeopardy is like a game of language and culture and knowledge. I go, a computer will never know enough about our culture to be able to play Jeopardy well. And yet it played better than the best human. Uh, I was once driving my son, Noah's next to me. He's a teen, he's bored. And uh, I go, hey, Noah, want to see the greatest technology advance since Siri, which in our household is kind of a big statement. And he goes, yeah, dad, whatever. And I'm driving my wife's car and we're coming up to a, a curve on the highway. 
and I take my hands off the wheel and I go, ah, and then the car drives itself around the corner. And he goes, dad, that's insane. And I'm like, yeah, it is. And you know, the craziest part of it is that the car did not do that yesterday. The self or this kind of quasi self-driving was an over the air update. Literally my car didn't do that yesterday. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. And I've got 20 of these things. So there are, there has been huge improvements in AI, but you ask kind of what's one thing people might not know or that I want to share. It's that even with all of this advance, um, people say, well, do we need to be afraid of AI? Is going to AI going to be smarter than humans? Um, and for me, you know, I've been wrong in my predictions before, but I'm confident that we will not see that uh, in our lifetime. Human, the human brain is so special. And there are things that a two-year-old, any two-year-old can do that no machine, I think, will, will be able to do now, not in 50 years, you know, not for hundreds to thousands of years. So we are special. That's the, the main message. AI, you know, may replace certain job functions, um, but to become in generally intelligent like we are, I don't see that on the horizon, despite incredible advances in the last few years. That's comforting. That's comforting to hear. Um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you're right. Or on, the, on the bright side, hopefully it doesn't happen in our lifetime and our kids' lifetimes. I mean, after that, you know, it's 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 yeah. it's free game from there. But the crazy, like you talked about, the cars driving itself. I'm still afraid to do it. Like I'm still like, there's just something in me that says like something bad's going to happen or could happen. I'm afraid to do it. But I will say the technology, you know, the alarm on your phone, to be able to lock the door on your phone, like that's that's incredible. Starting your car up without a key, like walking up to certain smart vehicles and like you put your hand on the on the actual door and it unlocks itself. Like it's unbelievable, like the advancements in technology that we have today. And uh, I, I remember when I thought it was cool. You could set a timer on the TV and the TV would just go off. Like I thought that was so cool. Like, <laughs> and now we're just in a completely different place. You can almost remember a time before the web, almost, maybe as, as a child, but you definitely remember a time before Twitter, a time before Instagram, a time before Zoom. And, you know, kids are like, oh my God, what would that even be like? I remember a good long time before there was an internet. You couldn't, couldn't look everything up instantly and it's changed so much. Um, but the question is what, you know, what for our kids today, if you go forward 30 years, what are we going to have that, um, that they say, well, you, you didn't have that. How did you even survive? Right. And, mm -hmm. and it's gonna, it's coming. Like there are changes in technology every year, every, every decade. So it's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. My wife and I were filling out the baby book um, and we were going over the, 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 the cost of bread and the cost of gas, right? Looking at, you know, how much is a gallon right now? And I asked my wife, I said, what's the cheapest price per gallon you can remember for gas? And we talked about it. And it was like, I remember when gas was $1.20. I remember when gas was one fifteen. I remember it was one oh eight. What's the cheapest uh, loaf of bread you can remember? And I was like, I remember the Wonder Bread was this price. And I thought to myself, I remember when they used to deliver milk, milk cartons, you know, the milkman. <laughs> and that's when I knew, like, guys on my team were like, what? 
I was like, yeah, they used to they used to deliver the milk. I remember when the phone, when you used to put your finger in and you used to wind it. No. Remember when the phone had cords? Like you had to connect it into the wall to use it. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 crazy how how far we we've kind of gone. You talked about starting in, you know, 86 or 88. You've had the the pleasure of working with some of the brightest minds. Obviously, you're one of the brightest minds. I want to know if there's any Steve Jobs stories you want to share. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll share one or two real quick. So uh, we had launched a free app in the app store, as I mentioned, called Siri. Um, and, you know, if you ask Steve Wozniak, who's the co-founder of Apple, what's your favorite app of all time? Steve Wozniak will say Siri, but not the Siri that's in our phones, the original app, because it did so much more. And I'm so proud of that. Uh, but we, we had launched this free app. Uh, people were using it and liking it. And then one day, uh, we get this phone call and it says Apple Cupertino. And we're like, swipe, swipe, because here's another thing people won't remember. In those days, you'd, answer, you'd try to answer a phone. Sometimes it wouldn't answer immediately. So we're like, answer, come on, answer, answer, answer. It's like some bug or something. So we finally answer on like the sixth swipe. And we hear this voice. Hey, it's Steve. What you doing? Want to come over to my house tomorrow? And we're like, Steve Jobs is calling us. And our first question to him was like, How'd you get this number? Because we had like, you know, website with no phone number, no address. Remember, we were like, Siri means secret in Swahili. So we were pretty secretive. And yet Steve Jobs uh, called us. Uh, we, we went over to his house, um, spent a couple hours talking about the future of technology, about our vision. He made it clear he wanted to buy our company. We said, thank you. Not interested. Goodbye. And we left. True story. <laughs> we're flattered. We said, we're flattered. Thank you. Not interested. Goodbye. Uh, but he came back uh, about a month later. He convinced us that he understood our vision. He'd support it. Um, and, you know, so we decided to sell our, our company to, to Apple. And, and then we went to work on building the Apple version of Siri. Um, a lot of times people ask me, what was Steve like to work with? And I'm going to tell you the greatest thing uh, for me about him. And sometimes when you meet great people, they think that they're the smartest person in the room. Now, he was a billionaire. He had already reinvented movies with Pixar and you know, music with, with the uh, you know, iPod and all of that. Um, but he never thought he was the smartest person in the room necessarily. And if you had an opinion that was different from his, that was interesting to him because he wanted to get it right, not be right. And he, that, even that very first day we met, he asked me a question. He's like, Adam, should, should Apple buy this company? And I won't reveal which company. And I'm like, no, definitely not. He's like, what? Why? 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 And we went at it in an all-out verbal war. And, and at the end, he said, you know, hmm, interesting. Uh, I'll think about it. You know, thank you. If you couldn't defend your position, he'd knock you aside. Don't waste my time. But that challenge... And him challenging himself and his views and opinions because he wanted to get better, get smarter, do it well. That was, for me, what made Steve great. And I, I see that in a lot of top people in every field. You know, David Copperfield is like that. You know, Kobe Bryant maybe might have been like that, where if there's something to learn, if, he had, if someone had a different opinion, he wanted every edge. He wanted to win. He wanted not just like, oh, I'm the best, I'm right. No, he, you know, wants to challenge that. So for me, um, 
that that's what made Steve Jobs great. Now, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I think a lot of people, and we have these ideas of what success looks like, how you quantify success. And um, the stories behind a lot of successful people kind of helps you paint the picture of the fact that there's a lot of similarities. Like there's a reason why you're successful. There's a reason why I'm successful. There's a reason why some of the most successful people get to that point. It's the hard work, it's the sacrifice, and it's the ability to adapt, but also the ability to be able to challenge not only other people, but yourself. I think that's that's what you want from a great leader. You want them to be able to be firm when they need to be firm, but also understand like, maybe you are right. Maybe I should change my way of thinking to make this better. Yeah, love that. Speaking of change, right? We got two more topics and then I will will let you get on with your day. Change.org. Talk about where was that when you kind of came up with this idea um, and, and kind of where it's going, obviously understanding that a lot of change has happened in this world for the better. A lot of things have been able to be put more so in the spotlight, as you talked about, being able to to change policy, being able to change things, people, the way things are viewed. Where was change.org at when you first kind of came up with this as a founding member, first developer, where it's at now and where do you see it going? So in 2004, it was the 10th anniversary of the web and I made 10 predictions for the next 10 years of the web. I had just beliefs of where the web would be going because it's like 10 years in, a lot had happened. But one of my predictions was social networking would go mainstream. I mean, crazy, right? In 2004, it was crazy. There were no, there was no Facebook. There was no Twitter, et cetera. Um, There was LinkedIn, but that was kind of niche. Um, But I believed that social networks would take off. And in 2006, MySpace became the number one trafficked website uh, in the world, in America. And I was like, okay, that's the trigger moment. Now is the time. So one of the things I do in invention, whether it's Siri or change.org or some of the other companies is like, you have to time it, right? If I had started Siri anytime earlier, 1993, 1999, it would have failed. So one thing uh, I did right was get the timing right. So in 2006, I met Ben Rattray. He had just moved from from Washington, D.C. I was the first tech guy. He told me about some of the visions that he wanted, uh, and that aligned with my predictions and my beliefs about where I thought the world was going. And we started what we said was the first social network for social activism. And today, change.org is uh, the world's largest petition platform. The way it works is if you see anything wrong with it, you uh, in the, with the world, and it could be big or small or international or local, you just say, I want this person or this organization to make this change. And here's why, three parts, this person or organization to make this concrete change And here's why. And if people agree with you, they just click and they sign a petition, um, takes a few seconds. And that, if you get a couple hundred thousand signatures, um, that shines a spotlight that really brings not just a problem, but a solution. Here's a proposed solution. We think this will make the world better. And the organization or person doesn't always do it. But if you get enough spotlight on it, they usually have to at least respond. Um, Pretty much every major social issue in this country, change.org has played a a role from like Trayvon Martin became a big story uh, when his mom started a petition saying my son was shot. Um, The person who did it is walking around. He should go under trial. I don't know if he's guilty or not, but he should go on, on trial. 
it became a you know change.org shined a spotlight on that that improvement request so to speak and it went viral and nationwide and many many others international issues big issues small issues so that's where it is uh today there's almost half a billion members i think we're at 486 million so in a couple months we're going to roll over the half billion mark i'm very uh proud of change for that um change.org was a for profit for good uh, it's now converted over to a a nonprofit um the investors basically donated a lot of their shares and so it's fully a nonprofit and where's it going um it's hard to it's hard to say but it's it's been growing and having impact uh, for just about uh, 15 years in december we had our 15 year reunion and all the good that's come out of it uh, is amazing and i just want more power uh, for change.org i just want more uh, success you know more power to them to to just keep that that rolling and growing and doing more and more good but it's really about harnessing the collective intelligence of the world to make the world better and that's really important no i appreciate you sharing that and and i've used change.org and i've seen some of the changes that it's made and some of the spotlight that it, it's put issues on that i just wasn't wasn't aware of just because we get caught up in our day-to-day lifestyle so um, i appreciate you sharing that Got to get on the basketball real quick before I let you go. Conference finals is currently happening right now. You're a basketball fan. You got the Warriors as a, you know, tech guy. I know you you you're partial to them. You got Dallas Mavericks. Luka obviously is playing extremely well. In the Eastern Conference, you have the Miami Heat led by Jimmy Butler and the Boston Celtics led by Jason Tatum. Who is your favorite to come out of the East and the Western Conference and who do you have winning it all? I've got mixed feelings. So, uh, I grew up in Boston and was born in Boston, so I still have green blood underneath, you know. I I started watching the NBA in 79 when Magic and Larry joined and I got to be in Boston for the for the 80s when there were some just epic epic rivalries. Um so I I I love Boston, but I've been in the Bay Area now since 1993. Uh the Warriors are my team. I've been a season ticket holder for a long time. I'm not a bandwagon fan. I've been I've been man, I I went through 15 years of just misery. Uh you know, coaching changes. Um so I've been I'm I'm all in and on the Warriors. I think they have a great team this year. The management team did an incredible job uh filling filling the kind of the reserve spots. Uh, Gary Payton the second what a story i mean he was the 15th man in the roster and almost didn't make the team and he started some playoff games and contributed in a big way him getting hurt is a huge blow um but they've got a system i i also have uh, a friend uh, on the Miami Heat um he was uh, i was lucky enough to be a guest coach for the Nigerian Olympic team last summer working with Mike Brown um, you know i played a minor role there but I got to know a lot of the guys on that team. Uh Gabe Vincent, you know, again, he's he's progressed so well this year and he's playing a major role uh for the Heat and I I wish him uh well. But if you ask me who's going to win and why and how, obviously I'm born in Boston, I'm going to pick the Celtics. I think, you know, Jason Tatum is 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 doing it and and how they kind of reverse their season. like the narrative of the whole first season in Boston was can 
can Brown and Tatum play together? And then with like almost no changes from like January 2nd on, they've been like the best team in basketball and just gelling, man, what a great, great story. And, and so I'm going to, I'm going to pick, uh, sorry, Gabe, I'm going to pick Boston uh, um, coming out in the East and in the West. Um, you know, we cannot take Luca and the Mavs uh, lightly. Uh, they've lost the first game in every series that they've played so far, and they're still here, right? They they were they were down 2-0 and, and looking in trouble, um, and here they're still here. So they're a great team, um, but I, I love my Warriors. Um, Steve Kerr and Mike Brown are just doing a great, great job. Uh, they play with joy. Um, you know, it just looks like fun. They move the ball if they can keep their turnovers low. Um, they've been out rebounding. Did you see they had a 70 rebound game the other night? And Kayvon, I mean, they're an undersized small team. They don't have a single big man on the like the their biggest guy is like six nine, maybe. And uh 70 rebounds. So I think if the Warriors can keep uh keep their turnovers down, they'll they'll come out in the West. And then people say, you know, you spent your first half of your life in Boston, your second half of your life and living in Oakland. Who do you pick? And man, that's a tough one. I kind of win either way. Uh, but I'm I'm gonna, you know, I'm all in on the Warriors and and have been for the last last uh you know whatever 29 years. And I'm uh, I'm I'm hoping for my team. No, that was that was a very exquisite explanation. You covered a lot of bases. You showed a little bit of analyst in you. Like, I think you got a little, <laughs> a little analyst. The, the knowledge, the facts, Gabe Vincent, the sleeper. The casual fan has no idea who Gabe Vincent is. You have to really be paying attention to basketball. Obviously, he's starting now in place of Kyle Lowry, but I've been watching him from afar this season. He's been great. He's played extremely well. And when you listen to this podcast, I'll have already talked about the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference, but the rebounding disparity is something that you brought up. A lot of people don't understand how important second chance opportunities are in the playoffs. That's been huge. And then lastly, you talked about the Celtics turnaround. Two things happen, right? They hire MA. MA's kind of figuring things out, right? Portland guy, Portland native guy. Team's kind of struggling. They're trying to figure out, you know, do they trade Jalen? Do they, do they build around Jason Tatum? Like, what are they going to do? They make one move, right? They make one move with deadline. No one talks about. They trade Josh Richardson for White. White came out of uh, with the San Antonio Spurs. They make that swap. I'm not saying that that was the difference in the season, but that was the only strategic move they made besides playing their bench more, defending better, and uh, sharing the ball more. But I thought that was very interesting. But like you said, two first-year coaches, right, for the organizations. Jason Kidd, the sixth year as an NBA coach, first year with the Dallas Mavericks. M.A., Portland native, first year with Boston, both with a chance to get to the final. So I thought that was really cool, but I won't take up any more of your time. I appreciate you sharing so much for us on the pull up pod. I appreciate you, you know, jumping in and being all in for the all in challenge. The things that you're doing with change.org are amazing. The things that you've been doing um, in terms of, you know, helping make the world a better place is, is something that you can never take for granted. Obviously technology is huge and we're thankful for Siri and all the things you've done in that space. But I want to thank you, you know, personally for being so personable, for checking on me and my family, you know, throughout these, you know, last year or so and uh, for being a friend now. So oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, well, thank you for everything, CJ. This has been what, what an incredible adventure. You've invited me to, to join and, uh, you know, I, I'd like to, I'll, I'll go on the air here and, and say I'd love to uh, turn it around. Um, you know, we, we live right outside of wine country. You know, you're a big wine fan. 
Uh, if you ever want to, if you have you and your family, now uh, Elise can, can drink a little bit. She couldn't last time, but if you guys want to come try some of the uh, the best wine, I will set up a tour for you and uh, and take you around uh, Sonoma or Napa or your preference. I will take you up on that for sure. Once <laughs> once little man gets a little older, and we and we you know yeah. get our get our babysit babysit situation under control in terms of babysitter. I will certainly take you up on that. So I appreciate that. A lot of you that watch TV have probably seen the clips about Patrick Beverly um, and Chris Paul kind of. The way Patrick Beverly kind of described his performance in not only the playoffs but historically, how he's fared against Chris Paul, talked about you know going back to, I think he said LeBron James Skills Academy back in the day where he quote unquote ate him up. Um, I've had some conversations about this in my group chat. Obviously, I know CP very well. Um, good dude, comes from a good family, obviously Hall of Fame caliber player. I've played against Pat Bev, so I know how he is as a, as a player and don't really know him as a person, but that's neither here nor there. I think a lot of guys around the league are indifferent about the situation. Um, obviously, you've seen what Dame said. Dame thought it was weird that he was kind of attacking him, but I think one thing I will say about Patrick Bailey is that he's consistent. He's consistently himself um, in terms of um, his expression in terms of his opinion, in terms of his beliefs, not only in the things that he says, but his belief in himself. Um, he talked about, you know, how the Clippers treated him, like his thoughts on the situation and how he basically guaranteed he was going to help get Minnesota to the playoffs. And he did just that. He also celebrated immensely um, after winning a playing game like it was a championship. But I say all this to say that he's consistently himself, so I'm not surprised. Do I agree with it? I don't necessarily think I agree with it, but I think everybody has a right to their own opinion. And I will say a lot of the stuff that he said about CP in terms of his performance in the playoffs was true. I think it was more so the way he said it, right? Like CP will tell you he didn't play to the best of his ability in the playoffs in that series, especially down the stretch. We don't know what happened. We don't know what was going on. There was a situation with the fans. There's rumors that he had an injury. I don't like to make excuses for people, but I think in this similar in this circumstance or situation, I think people more so reacted because of how Patrick Beverly delivered his thoughts and opinions on the matters. But I think the consensus around the league is that, one, CP's obviously a Hall of Fame caliber player, um, going to be in the Hall of Fame lock, has a history of performing at an elite level, uh, played extremely well, has lost a lot of series, um, being up 0-2, which is unfortunate. A lot of things have taken have have created that that scenario and I think for Patrick Beverly people know him like he's competitive he's combative at times he's outspoken he's unapologetically himself so I think a lot of people are just aren't surprised at all and they're kind of just like uh, it is what it is he was on TV he got some sound bites in he got his opinions off he got his opinion across and if anything it was probably a good audition for what may be a future career for him in media because um, he's been doing the doing the round. So I think that's pretty much been the consensus. I haven't really talked to a lot of people outside of my group chat, but I think the way I move is just different, right? Like I'm very quite frank about a lot of things, but I'll never challenge, you know, people's character or things of that nature. But if I see something, I believe something, then I'll speak on it. But I'm more so, I like to, to dissect the game, right? Like what happened in this series that caused CP to play the way he did? You know, was it the Dallas Mavericks? Was it an injury? Was it the offense? Was it the flow? Was it the foul trouble that he got in one game? Like what kind of happened? 
and then kind of look at it from that lens as opposed to you know some of the other lenses other people look at. Can you share who's in that group chat? <laughs> no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pull a Pat Bev and speak on you know <laughs> things that are spoken on behind closed doors. But like I got I I speak to a lot of NBA players on a, on a, like obviously as a president of PA on a day to day basis. But it ha- it's come up in group chats with NBA players and it's come up with group chats that that don't have NBA players and there's been mixed feelings, mixed comments. But I think the moral of the story is that we all have a right to our own opinion. I think that how your opinion comes off is what causes the, se- the side conversations, right? Like if he just would have said CP didn't play well, which is kind of what Matt Barnes said, right? Matt Barnes said CP didn't play well. You know, he didn't play his best basketball. Um, he wasn't his normal self. But even with all that being said, him not being his normal self, not playing his best basketball, the stats were still better than Pat Bev's stats, right? Career and otherwise. So I think that kind of painted the picture as to, you know, why is he kind of going at him like that? It felt personal. It felt personal to me. You know, as I watched, I was like, this looks personal. But it is what it is. I've moved forward. I'm enjoying my summer with my family. I'm having fun. I'm watching the games um, unbothered, unbiased. But yeah, I, I think that, that situation definitely came off personal. We spoke briefly about Jimmy Butler earlier. He's definitely a guy that really changes his game in the playoffs, takes it to a whole nother level. So my question for you is, who would be in your all-NBA first team of guys that become totally different players for the better uh, in the playoffs? Jimmy included, if you want to include him. Yeah, this that's a great question. And I think... You know, having done some research on this, first and foremost, I think that there's a lot of players um, that play well in the playoffs, right? Role players included. But I want to point out that occasionally it's easier for role players to play well. I'm not saying that their job's easier. I'm simply saying that a lot of the tension, detail, and focus goes towards the star players, right? The double teams begin to come, things of that nature. And looking at some of these current series that we're watching, it's up to that star player to make the right play, the right pass at the right time to empower his teammates, to put them in position to succeed, to not throw them grenades. A grenade is like a late a late pass off, to, off, <laughs> not on time, not on target, late in the shot clock where they have to kind of throw up some bullshit. Um, I think those are issues, right? But you look at the playoffs, generally speaking, role players win championships, right? They, they, they play well, your team is successful. They don't play well, it's hard for you to win because they're going to get more opportunities to shoot, to score, to make plays. Star players, there's more attention to detail, there's more focus, more double teams, all those things. So it is hard for a star player to play better than he does in the regular season in the playoffs. And a lot of people not only play either the same or close to it, but it's generally sometimes the numbers drop because of the attention to detail. Guy like Jimmy Butler plays better in the playoffs. He's more aggressive. He's been more efficient this year, uh, more focused. Um, and I think that's kind of shown in his in his ability to perform. Last season, he didn't necessarily play well. They ended up getting swept. Numbers weren't great. The year in the bubble, he played extremely well and took his team uh, to the NBA Finals. So I think you've kind of seen the consistency there. Luka has been great from day one in the playoffs. His numbers are historically great. You can put them up next to, to MJ and Larry Bird. That kind of shows you where he's at. Um, he rises to the occasion in big moments. He hits big shots. He's unafraid. He's unbothered. He's 
elite in a sense. Giannis has been outstanding in the playoffs. Um, obviously, he's terrific in the regular season, but in the playoffs, he's getting 40 and 20. He scored a 50-burger in an elimination game where he made you know 17 out of 18 free throws or something crazy like that. It just seems like his focus goes to a new level. The defensive intensity is there. I think in the Boston Celtics series, he got 20 offensive fouls on charges because that shows you how aggressive he is getting downhill and also shows you how players have began to figure out how to manipulate the refs. Another guy, Joker, has played extremely well in the playoffs. I've played against him, so I know for a fact, haven't seen it up close and personal. He's good in the regular season, but the lock-in is different. The aggression is different. The way they play through him in the playoffs is different. I think it's kind of showed. The fifth one is kind of hard to decide on, so I think what I'm going to do is allow pull-up pod fans to tell me you know, a list of players that they think are playing better in the playoffs historically, are kind of raising their level of play, similar to Game 6 Clay or, or Game 7 CJ. Like, who's kind of taking their game to new heights, to new levels? And I also want to provide you guys with this fun fact. There aren't a lot of guys who are able to, you know, make it to the playoffs consistently. There aren't a lot of guys who are able to, to score 20 points per game consistently, not only in the regular season, but in the playoffs. And I think I seen a stat on TV that said I was one of four players to average 20-plus points per game at 20-plus points per game in the playoffs, so that would be regular season in the playoffs, in seven straight years. I think Russell Westbrook was on there. Um, obviously, the Lakers didn't make the playoffs this year, and I think Paul George was on there. Obviously, they didn't make the playoffs this year, so I think it's down to me and I don't know who else, a couple other guys, but that's a fun fact for you right there to take home with you. Can you add one role player to that list that consistently takes their game to the next level? A guy who historically has played well in the playoffs is Andre Iguodala, right? Like. You kind of know what you're going to get, and that's why he's still in the league. That's why he's in position to get minutes whenever he comes back for the Warriors, and that's why he will definitely change this series. Regardless of how well he shoots in a regular season, regardless of how well he shoots in general, he always seems to hit big shots in the playoffs. There's a reason why he has a finals MVP and 30 doesn't, because he stepped up big time when the team needed him. He defended well. He facilitated. He was more of a point forward, guarded, but he also hit big shots. So I think that's an example of a guy who— in my eyes, obviously the Philly days aside, has played better in the playoffs than he has in the regular season. Another guy who hits big shots, right? Big Shot Bob hits big shots in the playoffs when you need him, when you need him most. He's clutch. He's efficient. He's effective. You could talk about some of the, some of the guys that played with the, the great Michael Jordan, right? Who hit big shots when he needed him most? Steve Kerr hits a big pull-up, right? Like some of those guys played extremely well. Ron Artest. You take away, you know, the Indiana Pacer days. Another guy who hit big shots when you need him to. Hit huge shots when you need him to. And eventually, and eventually uh, helped Kobe uh, win that last finals. Turning the page to the New Orleans Pelicans, a.k.a. my new home, a.k.a. my team. We recently were in the lottery. The lottery takes place in Chicago, Illinois. And if we received a lottery ball, in the top 10, we got the Lakers pick. If we didn't, the Lakers got to keep their pick because it was top 10 lottery protected. Long story short, we got the eighth pick in the draft um, coming up this upcoming summer, June 23rd. And it'll be interesting to see kind of what we do, who we select, things of that nature. But I think the cool part is figuring out, you know, how we're going to get this potential player acclimated with our team, you know, a veteran team. And I think it'll be really cool Um to not only see who we pick, obviously, but to see how this pick turns out. As a guy who was a top 10 pick, I think there's a lot of hype around the draft, but you're also unsure of which picks will pop, right? Like the number one pick isn't always necessarily the best player in the draft. 
the number thirty pick isn't all isn't necessarily the the last pick in the first round worthy type of player. Like we got a we got a Herb Jones in the second round, right? We got a Jose Alvarado who went undrafted. So there's always some sleepers in the draft. So I'm curious to see how this works. But I think the cool part of integrating a young player is just kind of showing them how to be a professional, right? How to work, how to show up on time, how you do things as a culture, how you do things as a franchise, and how you become a sustainable NBA player. And by that I mean a guy who can stay in the league for a long period of time. So I think it'll be cool to integrate them. We'll do a team trip kind of working on organizing some stuff now behind the scenes. And I got a call this week to figure out, you know, when we're going to plan a team trip where it's players only and we'll go somewhere secluded, bond, you know, go out to dinners, hoop, you know, lift, go to the beach, dinner, things of that nature to kind of build that team chemistry, camaraderie, and kind of welcome, you know, our new player into the fold and, and also get more accustomed and acclimated with, you know, my teammates who I met, you know, 90 days ago. So we were in New Orleans last week and we, we took a lot of time just kind of exploring menus, exploring restaurants, exploring, you know, different places we can get sandwiches at, we can get brunch at. And my goal is to, to basically try to eat at a restaurant one day a week where I do brunch one day a week. And then I also do dinner one day a week and my wife is on board. So we're going to have a lot of fun with that. But we ended up ordering wine by the glass. However, on Mother's Day, I went to a local store and picked up a CDP, a 2016 uh, CDP to be exact. And it was a really, really good choice. Super, super smooth. For those that aren't aware of what CDP is, it's Chetanov de, de Pop. <laughs> I don't really know how to say it. Probably get it wrong all the time, but it tastes really, really good. And to give you a little background on some of the tasting notes, price obviously varies depending on the year. Um, for those that aren't fully aware of it, but it's definitely a, more on the smooth side, a lower in acidity, uh, full, full, full mouth, full body. Uh, you definitely had the hits of, of cherry, little bit, little bits of oak, things of that nature. And what I really, really like about it is, is the fact that you can compare it with anything. We ended up pairing it with a, a pasta with red sauce and some meatballs, uh, along with the Caesar salad with, with like cucumbers and things of that nature. But it really brought out the taste. And that's what I really enjoy most about this wine. Um, I thought it was really good and my wife enjoyed it. And you, you definitely got a little bit of hints of vanilla and tobacco, but not too much to where it was overwhelming and overpowerful. The price of the bottle of wine that we had was more so on the expensive side. So I call it 450. However, there's CDPs that range from $28 all the way up to call it a thousand. So you have a little wiggle room there. As always, be sure you're following the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your shows. Tell a friend to tell a friend and hit the show up on social at Pull Up Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We're always posting fresh content there all season long. I want to thank our special guest, Adam Shire, once again for pulling up. And as the saying goes, don't forget to pull up. Pull up.